Thank you so much. It's great to be here this morning. Thank you for that thunderous applause. It just <laughs> makes a fella feel really welcome. And uh, it actually serves two purposes, too, because it also confirms to my wife of 49 years what I've been preaching to her for all of those years that she's living the dream being married to me. <laughs> and that all of you would agree. So, Becky, there you go. Well, Becky and I are glad to be here this morning. It wasn't that long ago that we had the privilege of being with you. It was either the very end of October or the very beginning of November. I can't quite remember. We were just finishing up three months of ministry at Calvary Chapel of Lake Arrowhead when uh, I was scheduled to come here, and so we did and had such a wonderful time. Uh, not much news in our lives since then. You're all always interested, of course, in my son-in-law's. And they're okay. They're, they both love Jesus, but keep praying. You know, it's going to be a lot of prayer to get them where they need to be, but they're fine young men. Let's see what else I can tell you. My grandson, Nikolai, uh, he's my third oldest grandchild on Christmas Eve. He's 19. On Christmas Eve, he got down on one knee, and to quote him, you are the love of my life, uh, will you marry me, to a very nice uh, young girl named Kate. And we're all very excited about that. He'd like to get married in July. She says September, so we'll see how the first argument goes about <laughs> when the wedding's gonna go, going to be. But we're very excited about that. Um, my great-granddaughter, Evelyn, we spent our, her first Christmas. We enjoyed that with her. And Becky and I went to Seattle to a place, actually north of Seattle, called Oak Harbor. And it's, how many of you have been there? Isn't that a pretty spot? Yeah, my daughter lives there uh, with my son-in-law and their children. And we had a great Christmas with them. It rained the entire time we were there. And uh, the Seahawks were playing the Sunday we left. And so we were just engulfed in traffic in Seattle like you wouldn't believe. But other than that, we had a wonderful time. Amen. Well, you know, while we were uh, singing this morning, uh, a scripture, uh, one of my favorites really, uh, came to my heart and mind, and I thought perhaps I would share it before we pray and enter into God's Word. And the scripture is this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now Jesus once told a story, and he told the story of a farmer who was casting seed on his land looking for a crop to come. As you know, some of the feed, in fact, most of the seed, fell on ground that didn't produce anything. But 25% of that seed fell on fertile ground and it produced fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, perhaps even 100-fold. And that's what we hope for this morning, that God's Word will land on fertile soil, on tender hearts, and it will produce fruit. Immediately, of course, but also as we go through this year of 2016, it's going to be a remarkable year for all of you because God has a plan 
and he's going to do things in your lives that are going to cause you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So maybe this is the first sermon you hear of the new year. Well, let it be something that will speak to your heart and help you throughout this year to bring honor and glory to him. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, we trust you, we believe in your word, and we're going to allow the word of God as much as we can with the help of the Holy Spirit to enter into the recesses of our heart that we might learn and grow and, yes, Lord, produce fruit for your kingdom, for you alone are worthy of praise. And so we come to you now in Jesus' name, humbly asking that you would work. In Christ's name we pray, and everyone agreed by saying, Amen. Amen. Now, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, you can open it now to 1 Peter chapter number 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, I noticed that there's some scattered around the sanctuary that the pastor has kindly left here. 1 Peter chapter number 1. And if you'll notice on the screen, the title of the message is an interesting one. When the rooster crows. When the rooster crows. Hearing the word rooster, you as Christians almost automatically think of the Apostle Peter. In the church, and the family of God, Peter will forever be linked with crowing roosters, among many other things. A short time before he was arrested, Jesus warned Peter about the problem of a crowing rooster. Our Lord, as usual, did not mince his words. I love that about the Lord. He just shot straight. Told him the truth. He told Peter that he, Peter, would disown his master, Christ, three times before the rooster crowed. Peter, of course, didn't think that was possible. When Christ was arrested by the chief priests and the temple guards... You remember what happened? All of the disciples, they fled off into the night. Sort of understandable, I guess. But as they led Jesus away and the disciples were running, for some reason Peter paused. He stopped. Winded from running, he started to think, and he started to consider. And for one reason or another, he decided to turn around and carefully follow Jesus. Now that was a good plan. The problem was is that he followed Jesus from what is described in the Bible as a safe distance. So he had a good idea, but poor execution. Following Jesus from a safe distance and what that implies is never a wise thing to do. Well, anyway, following Jesus 
from a safe distance. He sort of snuck into the courtyard owned by the high priest. And the big fisherman, not as bold as he had been at other times for sure, began mingling with the crowd. He wanted to see what was going to happen. And again, that turned out to be a a bad decision. For as he was mingling with the crowd, a servant girl, just a, a little girl, recognized him and said, oh, aren't you one of his disciples? And she asked him about his relationship with Christ and the others, and immediately Peter, rather than being bold and strong, he wilted. And he denied it. I don't know him. Vehemently. Three times. And in fact, the Bible says he was cursing while he was doing it. And then, just as Jesus had promised, the rooster crowed. And if you remember, immediately Peter, no doubt, eye contact with Jesus, was devastated. And the word of God declares that he went out and he wept bitterly. Bitterly. Now, I've wept. But I've only wept bitterly maybe once or twice in my life. How about you? Most of us here have have cried a tear or wept at the loss of something or some tragedy that befell us. But to weep bitterly, that's an entirely different type of weeping. That man Peter at that moment was devastated. Now you have to wonder what kind of emotions were welling up within his heart. Well, think about how you would feel. What emotions would be going on in your heart? God's not a respecter of persons. Peter uh, is just like you in many ways. You would be first and foremost ashamed of yourself. Secondly, you would be afraid. What are the consequences? Will God reject me for this sin? For hiding my relationship or feelings about Christ? You would then probably head towards disappointment in yourself. Angry at yourself. And I think Peter was disappointed, ashamed, and frankly furious at himself when he ran off to weep bitterly. My dear brothers and sisters, it is a dark and gloomy morning when we refuse to acknowledge the Lord to other people, denying Him. Afterwards, it's very, very painful. And we've all done it. I've done it. There were moments when I should have stepped up and declared my faith and offered the assistance of Christ and haven't. Even as a pastor, I go to a gym. And in that gym are a lot of men. And some of those men are Christians. And isn't it wonderful, the fellowship that we have? We just know that each other are believers. We know what we're thinking. We know where we're at. But there are other men at that gym that aren't Christians. And they say things and do things that are really contrary to Christian behavior. And I do not necessarily step up and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? Let me tell you about Jesus. I wish I was more bold. 
just as you wish you were more bold, at least most of you. Our neighbors across the street had quite a little tiff not long ago, and it was in the garage, and I could easily hear it. I was in the garage doing something. I could have walked across the street and offered the help of the truth of God's word and Christ's love, but didn't. Now, I'm not confessing all this to you to tell you what a poor pastor or poor Christian I am. I'm telling you these things so you can relate to it because you all know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a dark and gloomy morning when we refuse to acknowledge the Lord and in some respects would even deny the Lord. So perhaps you, like Peter, for a good season, have followed very well. But then a day came when you made a decision that you would follow him from a little bit further away. You decided that you wouldn't follow so closely any longer, and it began to show up. It starts showing up in your words, the words that come out of your mouth, the attitude that comes from your heart, the deeds that you do or don't do, the witness that you don't do any longer, the light that's supposed to be shining brightly has dimmed, and the salt is not so savory. Perhaps that describes you. Remember, the Bible doesn't say that Peter failed to follow. It says he failed to follow closely. When he was following Jesus closely, he didn't always get everything right, but he did hear the Lord. But when he followed from afar, he lost contact with the truth of Christ and who he was. At one time he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. At another time he said, Where can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. But that day, when the servant girl quizzed him, he said, oh no, I don't even know him. A disciple? Ha! Oh, absolutely not. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Earlier that night, Jesus had taken Peter and the others into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asked three of them, John, James, and Peter, to pray with them. Actually, to move into a a more secluded part of the garden, and pray with them. And his exact words were, please come and watch and pray with me. He wanted them alongside of him, interceding as he battled out his agony of submission to the Father's will about the cross the following day. And Jesus knew that trouble was afoot. The cross really was just around the corner of the morning sun. And Jesus wanted them to pray before it arrived. But Peter found the garden so peaceful, so quiet. The people in the city were fast asleep. And so the noise of the city wasn't there to disturb him. It was very quiet. And the dinner, oh, the dinner had been delicious, so wonderful. And maybe Peter had taken just one extra goblet of wine. We don't know. And it was hard for Peter to believe it was necessary to stay awake and to pray. I mean, why? Look, it's wonderful. Everything is fine. It's true. Most of us do not pray before trouble comes. 
We wait until the soldiers arrive on the scene. We put it off until the arrests have been made and the trial and the trouble is in full swing. Then we consider praying. And that's a very common mistake in the body of Christ. But the problem is, if we fail to be fortified by prayers, we won't do well when our Judas arrives to betray us. We won't do well when we find ourselves, as Peter did, surrounded by a hostile crowd and enemy soldiers. We forget that in many ways we are surrounded all the time by enemy soldiers. You see, before... In other words, now, not after, is the crucial time to pray. That's why Jesus looked down at his sleeping friends and said, Why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Rise up and pray, lest you fall into temptation. I started pastoring uh, in 1980, basically, in Prescott. Pastored that church for 29 years. What a glorious experience that was. So many things happened, good, bad, and all kinds of things, but yet God was working. And since then, I've had the opportunity to pastor five other Calvary chapels for little short bursts of time, helping them get over some difficulties. I can't remember the last time I didn't do this, but closing the sermon down, I say, don't forget, read your Bibles, say your prayers, and love other people, and God will bless your life. You have to say your prayers. You have to rise up early tomorrow morning and say your prayers and read your Bibles. From the looks of the color of the hair I see out there, most of you have the time. (laughs) It's just a matter of the will, isn't it? (laughs) November, I turned 71. Looking out at this congregation, I feel like I'm at a class reunion, you know? (laughs) Peter slept while the master prayed, and when the pressure came, he resisted when he should have submitted. Malchus, the servant, he was the recipient of Peter's lack of prayer. He pulled out his sword and took his ear off, which Jesus healed. He sat down by the fire in the presence of our Lord's enemies, and eventually, when the pressure really hit, he denied the Lord. He denied his faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He denied that, and he denied the brotherhood. He denied the disciples, the apostles, the fellowship, all that he claimed meant so much to him. And then, as you know, the rooster, it crowed. And that bird instantly brought Peter into a guilty awareness of what he had done. It was a very tough moment for the fishermen. Maybe the toughest of his entire life. You see, earlier in the evening at the table, he had piercingly proclaimed in front of everybody, too. 
He said, and I quote Peter, even if all are made to stumble because of you, Jesus, I will never be made to stumble. Good lesson there. Never say never. Can't happen to me. Yes, it can. And the more you proclaim it can't, the more likely it is that it will happen. What happened to him? What happened? Well, Peter experienced pressure, fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind, but he got afraid. I get afraid sometimes. What are people going to think? It's real easy to tell some people you're a pastor. It's a little harder to tell others. I don't know why that is. And in his life, the stress mounted. He got scared. Something snapped. And Peter failed. The rooster crowed. And bitterly, he wept. I can almost hear him saying it. I can't believe weeping. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I denied the Lord. Weeping and crying. But there was no pulling it back because once those words came out of his mouth, they were gone forever, weren't they? Unrecorded forever. Now David, King David and Peter, they had something in common. And what they had in common, in my mind, was that neither had prepared adequately for the brute force of the enemy's attack, how strong it would be. David was a great commander on the battlefield. We all know that. He had his mighty men of valor, and oh, they'd beat the Philistines up and all of that. But he was a terrible soldier when it came to spiritual warfare and resisting temptation. He never expected to be an adulterer, a homewrecker, a conspirator to the crime of murder. He never expected that. But that was all before Bathsheba moved in next door. You see, like Peter, David was not prepared for the attack, the brutal attack of the enemy. Now, Peter was a great talker. Peter was a great talker. Especially when his audience was a group of men who loved Jesus. Peter was a great talker, but he was not so great when he was confronted by the enemies of Jesus. There is a big difference between talking and walking. I know that, and you know that. When we come to church and have wonderful fellowship, man, we can really talk it up. The issue is, can we follow it up with walking? Walking worthy of the vocation for which we have been called on the outside. Talking and walking are not supposed to be separated. Our talk should be matched by our walk and vice versa. Now Peter, oh my goodness, he learned that lesson the hardest way possible. Now years have gone by. Now he's a solid dude for Christ. He's really doing great. 
And he wants to write a letter to some Christians that are struggling. And he's preparing these early Christians, and I believe us as well. He's teaching lessons that will profit them, and I believe us as well. Because he doesn't want them to regret their actions. He doesn't want them to someday kick themselves and weep bitterly for failing Jesus as he did. Now, these people he was writing to were just like us. They were facing temptations, and there was the threat of persecution, certainly rejection, just as Christians today in America are being rejected, at least our fundamental core beliefs are. And so just like us, they were tempted to deny Christ, turn from the faith, or just kind of live a very quiet, hidden Christian life. To be sort of passive, you know, about their faith rather than assertive. And his hope is, by teaching them certain things, they will be strong in the Lord, desiring on their part daily to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to do great things for him. And so he writes to them in verse number 17, And if you call on the Father, pray, who without partiality judges according to each one's words. No, oh, it isn't words, is it? Each one's work. Remember, talk and walk. Each one's work. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now please keep the context in mind. Peter is writing to a group of people who are going through a really difficult time. Rome was on a rampage against Christianity. In the midst of the difficulties that they were experiencing, they could either experience joy and victory or they can feel sorry for themselves and fall back into carnality or hidden faith and follow Jesus as Peter had done that night from afar. It is now 2016. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since these days. But the truth remains the truth. If we drift, If we drift, there will be repercussions. If we drift individually, if we drift as a church, there will be repercussions. And those repercussions could be heartbreaking. Which is why he writes to them and to us by default, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. We have to stay away from sin. We have to pray and seek the Lord, that we could be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Without his power, I can't do it, but with his power, I can do all things through Christ Jesus, who strengthens me. Sin is a terrible thing. Flesh is a terrible thing. The St. Petersburg Times, Russia, carried a news item not long ago about a hungry thief walking down the street he grabbed some sausages from a street-side meat market. What he didn't know was that the two sausages that he grabbed were actually part of a string of sausages some 25 feet long. (laughs) You see, sin is always bigger than we first think. Running down the street, you can hear the story. You can tell it yourself. He got all tangled up in the sausages. They stalled his getaway. Down he went. The police and the store manager found him 
in a tangle of flattened pork. And then, there he was. And Peter knows that sin is like that. It comes with more than we expected. And it tends to entangle us, ensnare us, and bring us down. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because the wages of sin, according to Paul in the Bible, is death, which is going down. Praise the Lord. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But we're talking about what sin can do to believers, especially when they're not following close. They're following afar. It gets much easier. Therefore, writes Peter, pass your time here with fear. Not fear of the Father. There's nothing to be afraid of from the Father, but the fear of the consequences of sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of the Lord is also to hate evil. Peter knew, as he wrote to these folks, all too well how painful sin can be. And inevitably, there will be repercussions. And Peter is absolutely clear, as God's children, they, and we as well, need to be serious about sin and serious about holy living. He wants all Christians to conduct themselves in a way that reflects the fear of God. He wants our light to so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who, in heaven, who is in heaven. That doesn't mean we need to be obtuse about our faith, but it does mean we need to glow, we need to shine. Our Heavenly Father is holy. At another time, he said, be holy, for I am holy. And the Father will not negotiate with our sin. He'll forgive it, but he won't negotiate with it. He's merciful, he's forgiving, but he's also a disciplinarian who cannot permit his children to live a determined life of sin and enjoy it. That's what chastening is all about, what you read in the book of Hebrews. And why is that? Because it was his son, his only begotten son, his only beloved son, that he sent to the cross of Calvary to shed his blood on Calvary's hill for our sins in the first place. It was our sins that judged his holy son on that cross. He writes in the second chapter of this same book, in verse 24 and 5, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. By his stripes you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but not any longer, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And to return is to return. It doesn't say, and return and then leave again. I thank God that my sins will not be held against me. I'm a blood-washed Christian as almost all of you are. But God will never give us the privilege to just go and sin or the freedom to disobey or disown his son. And if any of his children fall into that kind of trouble, the father will chasten them. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man or a woman sows, that shall he also reap. The Father expects his children, you and me, will be loyal to his son Jesus. Loyal even when it's difficult to be loyal. 
a good term would be loyalty now. Sometimes I think of titles for sermons before I have the sermon, but that would be a great title. Loyalty now. Jesus was crystal clear as he stood on the Mount of Beatitudes. No one, he said, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is an uh, Arabic word or Aramaic word that means money, but it's the flesh. It's the things that are carnal. And Peter was right there that day, and he had heard Jesus say that very clearly. You cannot serve two masters. And we all here know that to be true as well. We can have only one master. We can't say, well, I'm really into God and the things of God at 9 o'clock in the morning on Sundays at Calvary Surprise, but by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, boy, you know, I'm a different fella. It doesn't work that way. You're either all in for Jesus or you're not. You're either for him or you're against him. You can't have divided loyalties. And it's very difficult today not to have divided loyalties because everything in our world tells us that we should have divided loyalties. Oh, you can be a Christian, but you have to accept this. Oh, sure, you can be a Christian and go to church and say Jesus, but you also have to accept this. If you don't accept this, then what kind of a person really are you? You see... The world wants us to have divided loyalties. And sometimes even Madison Avenue has us dividing our loyalties. Should we buy this or help a missionary? You know, divided loyalties. And the world will often try to force us to have desires for the things of the world more than we have a desire to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. And if that succeeds and we fall back, we eventually will weep bitterly. So, having said all that, can you, not your neighbor, not the fellow or woman in front of you or behind you, can you honestly say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and God is your master and the word of God is your life? Most would say yes. But it is hard because there is pressure. And that's exactly what Peter is driving at. Following Jesus, as I'm so, you know, in such a sophomoric way trying to describe, will always result in conflict. There'll be a conflict in your heart, there'll be a war between the spirit and the flesh. There'll be conflict with the world around you and society. There'll be conflict even with those that you love and would say, I'm very close with. But we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said these words, do you suppose that I came to give you peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided three against two, and two against three, and Peter knew this all too well. And when he was pressed upon, he caved in. He didn't do well. And three times he said, cursing, I do not know that man. And then the rooster crowed, 
And he went out and hid himself someplace and wept bitterly. Now the years have gone by. Now he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pentecost. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you can be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And now Peter's fiercely loyal. And he wants these Christians to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit so they'll be loyal as well. There is no middle ground. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ, to Christianity, to its tenets, to the Apostles' Creed, the Bible should be a shining characteristic in God's people. Donald Trump said the other day, I love Christians. I love the Bible. I'm going, what? I'm glad he loves me. Delighted. Maybe he'll send me a check. I don't know. (laughs) But something is wrong there, isn't it? Very subtle way to divide loyalties. Jesus used salt to illustrate the qualities that should be in his people. He said to each one of us, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor or savor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Like salt, you see, we need to make a difference. We should make the world around us taste better. A perfect illustration is you take a a big building like this that used to be a Safeway or an Albertsons or something and a CVC pharmacy or something, and you turn it around and you turn it into something gorgeous for God. That's the way our life should be. We should be impacting the people around us. And like salt, we should be counteracting moral decay. We have to really think. We have to watch the talking heads on TV and then kind of filter what they say through the truth of God's Word. We really do need to do that, especially now. There's so many talking heads on TV. Amen. All through the Bible, God had His faithful remnant, followers, And now it's our turn. In 2016, big year for the United States of America, we have a lot of problems, serious problems. This is our moment to be a faithful remnant. We have to be like salt and light. Peter was calling the believers in Asia Minor to be faithful no matter what. God is calling us right now to be faithful no matter what. I had time with your pastor and his wife last night. He's a faithful man. He's faithful not just to you. He has to be to be a good pastor, but he's faithful to God. And he's faithful to God's word. And just in case those people forget, or we could forget, he continues. He reminds them the power in all of this. 18 verse. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct and recede by perdition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is the highest motivation for holy living. And it's the highest motivation for faithfulness that the world has ever seen. It is absolutely the best reason for loyalty to Jesus. And that is the truth of the cross. He shed his blood for the remission of our sins that we might live forever. He redeemed us. Redemption. Interesting word, redemption. To all of us, it's you know, kind of a biblical or a theological word. But it carried special meaning to the people of the first century. There were 50 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And many of those slaves had become Christians. And it was the dream of every slave to be redeemed. To somehow get enough, you know, in the way of gold coins together that they could pay their master and have freedom or the hopes that some other kind person would buy them from their master and after serving for a year or two they'd be set free. Redemption. It was a very precious thing in the first century. But Peter is talking about a different, more horrific slavery. He's referring to the slavery of sin. We must never forget the slavery of sin. And sin is enslaving. Once you start with a little bit, the shackles go on and it's got you and you're a slave. I came to Christ when I was 30. Some of you came to Christ when you were seven years old. I understand that. But the majority of people came to Christ a little bit earlier in life. Now, I was quite a sinner. I guess I really became accountable for it and it became serious when I was about 16. 15, whatever, you know. But I was still kind of a kid, 17, 18. Then I went in the Marine Corps. It's kind of a wild young guy, 19, 20. Then I came home and 21 and married this beautiful wife of mine. And I wasn't a kid anymore. Now I was a husband. And it wasn't long after that, a couple of years, I was a father of two girls. But I continued to sin. I knew it wasn't right, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't quit. I was enslaved to sin. All kinds of sin. The kinds of sins that you read about. You know what I mean? In the paper today. Enslaved. It got so bad that my wife said, I don't know about our relationship. I don't know anymore. My brother-in-law said, why don't you go to church? I said, church? So we went to church on a Monday night at Costa Mesa. Monday night. I thought, who goes to church on a Monday night? (laughs) A Monday night. I couldn't even find a place to park. There's an auditorium bigger than this, but as full as this. There's this young guy up front. He says, do you need Jesus? Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. My hand went up. Oh, boy, do I need Jesus. And that slavery that I was in to all those sins was instantly... I mean, and it's a long laundry list. Instantly broken. Instantly broken. Started the next, started that night with prayer with Becky. I didn't even know how to pray. I said, we should pray. She went, okay. (laughs) I closed my eyes and she stared at me while I tried to pray. Some silly little prayer, you know. Gave me a little Bible. 
probably cost them about 49 cents. I thought it was worth a million dollars. And I got up the next morning at 5 o'clock and went downstairs to the dining room and I put it on the dining room table and brought a lamp over close and started to read. It was just the New Testament and I couldn't put it down. Just couldn't put it down. And I read it straight through. And then I read it straight through again. And the slavery that I had experienced was gone. Redemption. I'll be forever grateful. I can't believe his forgiveness forgave me that mercy of all those awful things I did through all those years. He forgave me. That's what Peter's saying to these first century Christians. Don't you dare forget why you were redeemed and how you were redeemed. And you be faithful to the Lord. So he was talking about a different kind of slavery. We forget. Moses used to say, what do you mean you want to go back to Egypt? Garlic, leeks, what's that going to do for you? It's going to give you bad breath and maybe gas. I don't know. <laughs> Come on. But they wanted to go back. And Peter is doing some of the same things to these people. He's saying, why would you want to go back? So he's jogging their memory. And I hope his scriptures, his writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, all scripture inspired by God, as you know, is jogging our memory. The blood, the pain, the sacrifice, the resurrection on Sunday morning. And Peter is attesting to it all. He was there. He writes in this same chapter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That's what He's done for us. So, Donald, on our tax form it says, we're winners. No, no, that's being a winner. I don't mind a tax break. Who wouldn't, right? Amen for that. More prosperity for us, great. But the real win is when I close my eyes for the last time. Because absent from this body is to be present with the Lord and in paradise forever. And so this is Peter's message to us this morning. If you have a tendency to return to your old life as a slave to sin, I want you to remember that you were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His glory of the only begotten of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He said to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. It might falter, it might get stretched, but will not fail. And it didn't, because he went out and wept bitterly. And when you have returned to me, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Do you love me, Peter, he said shortly thereafter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter said, 
You know I love you, Lord. I love you. And he said, great, then go feed my sheep. Three times, interestingly enough, one for each denial. So he was restored and recommissioned. Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. Satan. Never seen him. Probably none of you have ever seen him either. He's been around a long, long time. We can't see him, but we can sense him, can't we? Interesting, interesting person, being. He doesn't age. Probably looks the same now as he did in creation. One thing I do know that he can't get any worse, and he certainly isn't going to get any better. And this gives me an enormous advantage because I can read the Word of God and I can see his tactics. Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, Paul wrote. And he operates the same today as he did in Adam's time and David's time and Peter's too. And later in this same letter, Peter will write, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Resist him and be steadfast in the faith. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When you hear them say it, when the world begins to creep in on you, remember what the Word of God says and be strong and walk worthy of the vocation for which you have been called. And remember, as Peter just was told by Jesus, he will be praying for us. And we know that also from the book of Hebrews. I'm sure Peter was so glad that Jesus had been praying for him. I'm so glad that Jesus intercedes for me too. Aren't you glad that he prays for you? He always knows what I need. He knows exactly what I need. He knew what Peter needed. Peter needed a good cry. He needed to be ashamed, embarrassed, humiliated, brought low, his pride crushed. He needed to be a broken man so the Holy Spirit could put him back together again and make him the man of God that he was always intended to be. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, totally collapse. And when you have returned to me, what faith? You can strengthen your brethren. And the prayers of Jesus, of course, were answered, weren't they? And that's what happened to Peter. In John chapter 17, he asked the Father to protect us from the evil one. In John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, he asks that we be set apart for himself, vessels used for the master, to unify us in brotherly love and bring us safely to glory. And so in essence, the Son of God has already asked the Father to make sure that you and I arrive in heaven safely, and for sure we will. But it's that short time in between that's dicey. In the time between here and there that the problems happen. When the temptations come. And frankly, I don't need the hassle. I don't need the pain. I don't need the humiliation. I just want to walk with Jesus. We all hear the rooster crow. All of us. 
And when the rooster crows and we go, whoa, the rooster's crowing, maybe he's crowing for some of you this morning, just know this, that God loves you with all of his heart. And Jesus and the Father, they're not shocked that you're hearing the rooster this morning. He's been praying for you. He's been interceding for you. So even if you are one step behind the Lord, two steps behind the Lord, three steps behind the Lord, a couple of off-ramps behind the Lord, the distance between here and Prescott behind the Lord, you know what? The rooster is crowing, and this is the time to allow God to minister to you and to bring you to the place you should be. And Jesus is amazing, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are called to His purposes, how God can turn everything around for His good, our well-being, His glory. Now, as for Peter, his failure was big, publicized, ugly. Everybody knew about it and knows about it even today, including this multitude here. But look at him now. Look at him now. Jesus turned it all around took his failure, and turned it into an opportunity for Peter to become an awesome servant, teacher, role model. What do we need to do when we have failed? What do we need to do when we hear the rooster crow? When we say, I can't believe I've done that. When we say to ourselves, how in the world did I get here today? I wanted to hear Bob Claycamp. He would have talked about something different. But now this guy shows up, and he's all over me, and he's in my heart, and he's messing around with my life. What do I do? Friends, you do exactly what Peter did. And you also learn a lesson from David. You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've sinned. I haven't been following close. I've let other things get in the way. And you admit your sin. David fought and fought and fought. But finally one day, in the presence of the Lord, he just collapsed and said, Lord, I have sinned against you. And he was forgiven and restored. So what do you do at a moment like this? Well, you recognize, first of all, that the rooster is crowing in your life. And then you repent. After you recognize that something is wrong, you have to repent. That simply means if you're walking in this direction towards the things of the world, the flesh, and all. You have to turn around. Oh, there's the cross, and walk towards the Lord. So you have to make a decision to change the way you live. You say, I don't know if I can do that. I don't think you can. But I know with the Holy Spirit you can, because He can do exceedingly abundantly above more than you can ever ask or think. He'll empower you. Ask the Holy Spirit to. He won't let you down. He's just waiting for you to ask. And then for some of you who have heard the rooster crow this morning, there's a bigger issue. It's the whole issue of having accepted by faith Jesus Christ as your Savior in your heart. And there's some in this room that have never done that. They've come to church, born, born and raised in a church, but have never really come to the place where they've gone before the Lord and said, Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need you as my Savior. And the rooster's crowing. And that the crow of the rooster's getting louder and louder. 
You heard something like this once before or twice before or recently or on TV or on the radio or the last time, you know, Pastor Brett was preaching or something and all of a sudden today it's just screaming. It's just that loud crowing of the rooster. That's God the Holy Spirit wanting to draw you to himself and show you love and peace and grace and joy and a future and a hope. So if you need Jesus to be your Savior, your Lord today, this is your moment. Can we close our eyes? Can we bow our heads? And I'm going to say a prayer. And if God is calling you into his kingdom today, then say this prayer with me. Say it in your heart. Don't fool around. The beginning of a new year, make this special and real. Say, Father in heaven, I believe in you. I believe you are God. And I believe that I am a sinner and I am separated from you because of my sins. But I don't want to be. I want to be close to you. I want to have the assurance of eternal life. And so I understand from the Bible that I must admit my sins, which I do. And I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord this morning. I believe that he was on that cross and he shed his blood and that he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that he died and was buried. And a few days later, on a Sunday morning, he rose from the dead and lives forevermore. So I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, my living Lord today. Change my life. Give me a desire to be all that you've created me to be. So I take you as Savior. In Jesus' name. Now our eyes are all closed and I guarantee that no one will be embarrassed. But if you said that prayer this morning, it's very important that you acknowledge it. Jesus said you should acknowledge me. Let your light so shine. All of that. So just very quickly, if you said it, you gave your life to Christ, recommitted, just slip your hand up. Just put it up. I'll just say God bless you. God bless you and you. Is there any others? God bless you in the rear. You may put your hands down. Several hands went up. Isn't that wonderful? God is touching lives. God is working in this church. God has great things for this church, and I thank you, Lord, that you do. And I pray that you'll continue to pour out your blessings in an amazing way, that your love, your grace, your mercy, your truth would just permeate this fellowship so that it might shine brightly for you. For, Lord, we want to be the light of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone agreed by saying, amen. amen.